Welcome to Supply Circles, stories from the innovators, disruptors, and improvers in supply chain management today, brought to you by AI Group. Hello, I'm James Scotland, coming to you from Jungenbad country. Thank you for listening. If this is your first time, welcome. If you've been here before, welcome back. It's good to have all of you with us. Thank you so much. In this fortnightly podcast called Supply Circles, I ask business innovators, influencers and implementers, how can we in Australia create resilient and sustainable supply chains at a time when we're implementing the business challenges of the three Ds, digitalization, decarbonisation and disruptions? So what's the answer? How do we build sustainable supply chains at this time? Well, today I'm pleased to say I'm speaking with a specialist in the creation and implementation of sustainability into both our businesses and into our economy. My guest is John Grimes, the Chief Executive of the Smart Energy Council of Australia. I'm delighted he can join us today. John's been heavily involved in sustainability and new ways of operating businesses for many years. And I know you'll be fascinated to hear what he has to say. John has been the Chief Executive of the Smart Energy Council for over 15 years, which makes him a leader in this still emerging sector. But he's more than an influencer and the policy guy for the sector. He's also a highly successful business person in his own right. Prior to joining the council, John founded a number of companies, including a startup company he took to a successful listing on the ASX with a market capitalization in excess of $30 million. Uh, His most recent company was in the environmental sector with operations in Australia, the US and the Middle East. Put simply, John is an accomplished and successful business person with a passion for and a deep understanding of the solar storage and the smart energy industry. I always enjoy our conversations and I'm so pleased to share this one with you, our listeners. So welcome, John. Welcome to the show. Sounds like it's been a busy life. It has, James. I'm delighted to be here. Tell us the backstory. What, uh, how did you end up in, in energy and understanding smart energy? Well, you know, like many people, I came through a circuitous route. Um, I actually began my career. I, I was a, an officer in the Air Force for a decade. I became a diplomat. I served in Australian embassies overseas. I then got into business. Uh, yeah, you were a spy, were you? Well, well, you know, <laughs> I, that, that's an outrageous suggestion, James. And uh, <laughs> my people will liquidate you afterwards for such a suggestion. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, and then got into business, you know, and, and as you said, sort of um, uh, did a startup in the technology space, took that to a listing, then did a water purification technology. So that was a bit more aligned in the environmental space. Two thousand and seven, you know, we, we were doing revenues of about $10 million a year, but we weren't profitable. We were a startup company. We'd, we'd, we'd spent a lot in terms of R&D uh, and the global financial crisis came. And so uh, an organisation called the Australian New Zealand Solar Energy Society were advertising for a part-time CEO. And I thought that'll suit me down to the ground. A couple of days working there, some consulting, maybe do some board work. Um, I'd had a, a strong history and background in commercialisation and innovation. Uh, and I got into the sector and I was amazed, James. You know, it's, it's unbelievable. I went to this conference in 2008 and I saw that, you know, all of the top scientists in Australia, the people who invented solar energy, people out of UNSW, people like Professor Muriel Watt and um, Stuart Wenham and others, and they had these graphs showing just how huge solar PV was going to be in the world, their cost projections and the technology projections. I must say that they were wrong. They were far too pessimistic. Actually, what transpired was much better than what they put in those 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 graphs. But I thought solar is going to change the world. That's 2008. So stepped into the industry and just got sucked in because this this is going this is the thing that's transforming our economy. And it's the thing that's, so it's, it's a sweet spot for me, James, because it does two things. Doing renewable energy, smart energy is about saving money. So it's the economically rational thing to do, but it's also about saving the planet, right? So it's this really nice confluence of, of, of or area of interest. And I've just been sucked in ever since. I think, uh, I think it's the best industry in the world and I thoroughly enjoy working in it. It was an exciting time, the noughties, wasn't it? I don't think we've actually come up with a name for that decade. Uh, but at the time, I was in the finance and insurance industry, and I went to a, a conference in, in Sydney where they said, you know uh, how you're trying to get people to not go into branches anymore and do their computing on the, on the, um, at home? Well, that's not it. That's just the beginning. What we're going to do is within 15 years, within 15 years, uh, this is 2000, uh, we're going to be doing 
booking restaurants and booking flights and paying our bills and doing everything on our phone, on our phone. I, I remember. That's right. And people would pick up the phone and they'd say, this is going to be your camera and this is going to be your banking app, you know, uh, interface. And it was like, wow. Yeah, that's this thing. thing called WAP, wireless application protocol. Yeah, yeah. It was an amazing yeah, yeah. time, amazing time. But it wasn't just that. The solar came up and all sorts of things. I actually lodged a patent in those days, about 2006, talking about uh, about uh, facilitating um, financial transactions using um, biometric technology. So, you know, looking at your phone, and that's the thing that actually triggers the uh, the financial transit way, way ahead of its time. Um, but uh, yeah, and look how it's changed the world. Yeah, I, I, when when history happens in our lives, we don't quite see it as history, do it as this life. But no, uh, that's right. exciting times. Yeah. Let's let's talk about. This idea of, of of getting smarter about the way we operate our world it not only saves us money, is more efficient, but also saves the, the, the planet. I know you've said uh, elsewhere that Australia's transition to a net zero emissions economy, I'm quoting you here, will deliver massive business and economic benefits. It is possible to grow jobs, attract investment, innovate and become more economically competitive, all while transitioning to a safer climate. Why are you so confident, John? Look, this, this is the biggest business opportunity that actually the world has ever seen. The decarbonisation, not just of the Australian economy, but of the global economy, is a massive, massive business opportunity. This is equivalent to the disruption of the Industrial Revolution, but it's going to happen 10 times quicker. And so there is no aspect of our economy, of the way we do business and live our lives that will be untouched as we transition. And so this is really about how do we, you know, you've got to think, James, we still we still live in a world that's driven by steam train age technology, right? This is about digging up coal, burning it to boil water to create steam, to drive a turbine, to create to create electricity. That is just, that is, you know, imagine the old steam train with all the, the, the pollution coming out of the spout. That's basically what we do. Now, the reality is we've got technology to not only do that much, much better, um, but much, much cheaper. So uh, l- let me give you an example, James. This is this is talking about the, the economic disruption. You put a solar panel onto your, onto your factory, onto your warehouse, on a big industrial roof around anywhere around Australia. Now, um, you'll be paying today, you know, varies, different jurisdictions varies, but let's say an average of about 35 cents per kilowatt hour to buy electricity from the grid to power your operations. That might be warehousing, it might be um, it might be manufacturing, it might be um, other energy intensive processes. And these are operations that work during the daytime, right? So people turn up in the morning, they work all day, and then they go home and then the sun goes down. Well, you put a solar uh, array onto your, onto your warehouse or, or indeed onto your home and the cost of electricity because you're going to buy you're buying essentially 25 years worth of electricity up front when you put the solar panels on the cost of the amortized cost including the cost of capital so all of the costs um, gives you a, 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 an average uh, return an average um, a cost of not 35 cents per kilowatt hour but four cents per kilowatt hour. We're not talking about a three, five, 10% saving, right? We're talking a 10x saving, right? Four cents per kilowatt hour. So, so the economics are driving this. So even if people are not, are not motivated by you know, doing something positive, they are motivated by the bottom line. And so that's really what's driving the transition, saving money, creating those jobs. Now, it's, of course, there are lots of other implications, things like heat pump hot water, actually people looking to cut the gas to homes and businesses. How do you electrify everything? The electrification of transportation, actually all of the energy today embedded in diesel and petrol that's on our roads, that's going to transition from being imported oil from petro dictatorships around the world, there's something like $30, $40 billion a year that Australia sends overseas, right, just to drive our cars, our trucks, our buses. That's going to be electrified. That's going to turn into electricity. And we can actually generate that electricity using renewable energy, not just solar, but wind, um, pumped hydro storage, so things like Snowy 2.0, the big projects being developed in Queensland and elsewhere. All of a sudden, we have the access to the world's cheapest electricity. Now, if you have the world's cheapest electricity, and why do I say that, James? You know, that's a big claim, the world's cheapest electricity, but it's actually the happenstance of geography. Australia's 
like a giant desert, right? Land is basically free. We've got so much of it, you basically can't give it away. We're also one of the windiest places in the world. So you take a solar panel, you take it to Germany, you install it, right? You, you take the same solar panel, you put it into New South Wales, Queensland, Western Australia. The one in Australia will generate up to four times more energy every single year than the one in Germany or Norway or Japan, or a whole bunch of other places across the world. So we have a geographic advantage, that great renewable energy, the really cheap technology equals the world's cheapest and cleanest electricity. So when you think about where where the energy powers of the world sit today economically, well, you'd have to be daft to think that we can't harness that and actually create enormous competitive value for all of our industries, for for manufacturing, but across the board. And that's what's so exciting about this is it is going to be a transformation. It's going to happen quickly and they're going to be big commercial winners in the process. In a uh, a former episode of this series, uh, I spoke to uh, Paul Hodgson from the the Green Hydrogen CIC, a mutual friend of ours, I think. Uh, And Paul said that uh, Australia went from zero to the world leader in LNG exports in 20 years. And there is about 30 years of LNG underground. If we put that energy into renewable energy, solar and wind in particular, given our resources, and working how much energy is in the sun, which be a couple of thousand years, we've got an amazing industry. If we can do that for LNG with a limited energy source, imagine an unlimited energy source. It's a fair argument. Totally. And, and, and here's, the, here's the guiding star, actually. What China has done in this space is nothing short of extraordinary. So the Chinese government in 2003, they saw the same graphs that I saw in 2008, right? And they said, they made a strategic decision, we want to control the global supply chains for solar PV, for batteries, for wind technology, and now for electric vehicles as well. And so they're strategically invested in this sector. Now, today, um, uh, China produces something like 95% of all the solar panels produced in the world. They produce uh, over 80% of all the batteries, and they'll soon produce most of the electric vehicles. Well, they already produce by volume the most electric vehicles in, in, in the world. Now, that solar panel export market is worth over $100 billion a year to China. And in the next year, that'll double and then double again. Um, what, what's happening is there is this massive transfer of wealth. There is $8.3 trillion a year in value from coal and gas exports around the world. So forget oil and petrol, just coal and gas, right? Something like $8 trillion a year. Now, what's happening is there is a transfer of wealth happening as we actually come off those energy sources, and it's going to places like China. They employ over 4 million people in the solar, directly in the solar industry today. So the opportunity is there if you have a plan and if you actually invest in it, Imagine that the dividends and returns to our country if we harness this really cheap energy and really prioritise this as being our differentiator in a world that is going to have to decarbonise rapidly. It's going to promote those who act and it's going to punish those who don't. People, you know, Things like the border tariff adjustments that the, that the uh, Europeans are putting in place means that if you actually have steel made from fossil fuels, if you've got aluminium made or glass or cement or a whole bunch of other things, you're going to pay a price for that, right? For a com- country like Australia, we could actually be embedding and, and exporting zero carbon products and services, value adding to minerals and other things. So massive opportunity to play for, um, and it's it's ours to lose. It just, it just requires leadership, the right structure, give business the incentives to act, and they will act because it just makes huge economic sense for them to do so. Yeah, uh, you make some good points, and I'll come back to the industry level in a minute, uh, but uh, let's put our supply chain hat on for a second. Uh, and there is an issue I've seen. Australia signed up to... Uh, a, uh, or implemented a regulation that says that we'll hit net zero by 2050. Uh, I think 140-something countries of the 197 have signed up to that. Everyone's heading towards net zero or, or even even stronger by 2050, some 2045. At a business level, that means that if we need to start implementing new smart energy sources, we need to start electrifying our business, we need to find a move away from our current energy that means that the whole world is going to be doing it at the same time now 
every procurement manager here will be saying, now that's a problem because you've got a deadline. There's going to be transition inflation. There's going to, it, the cost of everything is going to go through the roof. So this is a bad idea, isn't it? Oh, you, you look, that, that, I think it's a very valid question, you know, and people, you know, so, so first we've got two problems. One is imagine if a single country controlled 95% of the oil, world's oil reserves, right? That'd be a problem just no matter who's, you know, involved in that, right? Oh, that would never happen, John. But, so, we, you know, we, we have a massive dependence, right? So that's the first thing. And strategically, we need to diversify. Um, and so that's really important. The second is you're quite right. But what's happening, it's really interesting. The Americans have woken up. So the Americans have looked across and they said, we're losing this race and actually we've been way too complacent. So they've put in, in place something called the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States. Now, the Inflation Reduction Act has two parts. One is direct incentives and rebates for manufacturers to start to build all of the things that we're going to need for this electrification journey, not just solar and wind, but everything, you know, renewable hydrogen, uh, you know, energy efficient appliances, electric vehicles, batteries, the whole gamut of things. And, and they're actually providing a subsidy of about $600 million US dollars directly for that cause. So, um, sorry. At six hundred billion dollars for that cause, right? So almost almost a trillion Australian dollars, right? For for that subsidy piece, the second for subsidies, if you buy this stuff, you'll get it cheaper. Well, yeah. so, so there's two. One is for manufacturers. That's actually the manufacturers piece. So that's where the, the manufacturers will actually get a a, a a a subsidy for having produced because they have to compete with with China that already has huge economies of scale and brought the cost curve way down. So the government's subsidizing the delta to make sure that the American manufacturers are in the game. The second part is they're giving tax incentives to everyday people. So you install a heat pump, hot water system, you install solar panels, you, you get an electric vehicle, you get a massive tax discount. So there's an incentive to actually create the demand and to create the domestic supply that's gonna meet that demand. And so that is actually gonna transform the global supply chain, but other countries are moving to India. Are you saying the inflation is going to happen now? Everything's going to go through the roof now? Well, well, it's it's actually anti-inflationary because when you oh. buy these products, what you're doing is, sure, there's an upfront cost of the product, but that product uh, might be 75% less energy intensive. So your power bill to, to power that product goes down by 75% for the life of the product, right? That's more money in your pocket Right, and so and so, it's uh, it, it's actually it's about cost of living saving for for households. Uh, it's not just the U.S. Places like India are moving as well. So India's put tariffs in place to stop external products coming in, and that's actually creating a massive boom in the production of these products locally. Um, by the end of the year, uh, India will be you know at, well close to a hundred gigawatts in capacity. Absolutely massive um, uh, for these products. So, so other markets are moving. They've been slow to the party, but it is going to uh, really kick in, and that's going to give Australia a lot more variety and options when it when it when it looks at uh, how we build our own um, ideal scenario here in here in Australia. Uh, so, you're saying that there's that, that India and America is, is is rapidly increasing their 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 industry, their production of the things that we're going to need, and now's the time so, to buy them. That, well, that, that's exactly right. So I India, America, the Europeans, the Japanese, the Koreans. So, so there's a whole ecosystem coming into, into play. Now, that bodes well for Australia because we also benefit at the other end. We have the source minerals that the world needs to create these products. We have over 40% of the world's lithium in Australia. Um, we have cobalt, we have copper, we have nickel, we have, you know, and, and so these, these minerals are things that we can mine in Australia, value add, right, by actually using cheap energy, clean energy to actually process these things. And so that we're not just digging up dirt and sending dirt overseas, but we're actually value adding to the product. Now, it's probably not feasible today at large scale to be manufacturing um, you know, some of the products in a finished form, but we could pass off partially processed, get them processed, and then, for, for example, send uh, um, uh, lithium, lithium uh, processed to Indonesia. Indonesia creates the, the battery cells. They ship those back and then we put them into products, into packs, into finished uh, finished form products. So they're the sorts of 
opportunities that we have immediately. In the longer term, I wouldn't rule out doing things like battery cell manufacturing or large-scale solar panel manufacturing in Australia, but it's going to take a little while to get the economies of scales for those things to make sense. Yeah, so uh, what are you suggesting that businesses do? Should they act now or act later, uh, wait for the IRA to, to wash through America? Or, or how's the best way to build a sustainable supply chain or build a sustainable business, right? So, so if, if every quarter that you're paying your power bill and you're paying at 35 cents per kilowatt hour, as opposed to a, a levelized cost of energy rate of four cents per kilowatt hour, you've got absolute rocks in your head. If you're in business and energy is a big input cost to your business, then you would be crazy not to move as quickly as possible. And one of the reasons I say that, James, is that the cost of things like solar energy has come down so dramatically. So when I began in this industry in 2008, a watt of capacity cost about $6.50 US for one watt of capacity. Today, that same watt of capacity, I can buy US cents out of um, a major manufacturer for $0.17, cents. $6.50 to $0.17, cents, 2008. 2023. Now, the cost does continue to fall. It'll go from 17 to 16 to 15 to 14, but that marginal difference is really small, right? The big savings have already been made, which means that if you don't have solar on your rooftop in your business and in your home, you've got rocks in your head. You're just giving money away to the big power companies unnecessarily. Yeah, I was talking to um, the uh, Anthony, the boss of Red Arc, a big business in uh, in Adelaide, and he says there's not one centimetre of his of his massive factory that's not covered. The roof of the massive factory that's not covered in solar panels. They've just put so much uh, effort into that, and that's making them an internationally competitive business. Well, well, one of the reasons. No, totally, and and we hear it from panel beaters, and we hear it, I heard it from a paint manufacturer, you know, and so there's all these businesses across Australia. Energy is a big input. Um, you know, they use energy in the daytime. So solar just makes perfect sense because obviously solar only produces when there's sun around. Uh, but the match is really strong and the business case is really compelling. So look, for other businesses, they will think about, okay, we've got a profile that's a bit different, right? And we've got a, a high uh, nighttime use. That's when you start to do the, the figures about, do we add some kind of storage, um, either a battery storage, um, uh, you know, for that or some other um, type of industrial process. And, and um, you know, in many use cases, that's going to make enormous sense. In others, it's marginal. So, you know, you're going to need to go through that process. But to cut the heart out of your power bill, it's solar that's going to do that. And uh, and that's where, you know, where, where the major opportunity is. Uh, you mentioned before about um, crazy systems, about inefficient systems. And if you look at the, the internal combustion engine motor vehicle that we've had since around the 1890s, uh, every engineer will tell you that it's an incredibly inefficient system. It, Based on six to eight thousand blunt force explosions every every minute, that drives a clunky crank, crankshaft, that drives a, a gearbox, that drives a drive chain, that drives it, and then you stop, and and the whole thing, the whole energy is lost. And so, if you tried to sell it today, people would look at you and say that is just a dumb, dumb system. In fact, they probably said that when they try to replace it with the horse. But we got so used to it uh, that it uh, it's the way that we think. And then you know, there's people that are passionately connected to it. To my to my mind, it's a bit like people passionately connected to LPs when you know digital music is so much clearer. But that's just me. Hey, tell me about Smart, smart Energy yeah. Council. What makes energy smart? So so really it, it's it's about being affordable. It's about being reliable. Um, it's about being cheap. But it's also about you know actually doing something positive in terms of the environment. So we we're gonna we're gonna strip back our emissions as quickly as possible. And so if you can, so so it's really it's it's the old energy system of the past, but with a focus on cost and cost efficiency, and a focus on uh, on on being clean. But it's also, as you say, James, it's about it's about harnessing modern technology. So, for example, there are almost 4 million Australian households that have solar on their rooftops today. Now, they're, they're driven by inverters. That's basically a, a, a power conditioner that takes the solar energy from your roof and matches it to the energy that you use in your home or that can be put out into the grid. So those inverters are actually really smart. And you can program them so that they are much, much smarter than the smart meter in your home, for example. And so you can actually use the smarts that are in that box to actually control loads around your home. 
um, to, to do things like to, to, to dial down the export. If the grid is actually suffering uh, where it's got too much energy, and there's not enough demand, you can actually dial that down so that you're not exporting as much to the grid or you're not exporting at all to the grid. Now, in the past, what we've done is we've not harnessed the intelligence of the system, but that combined network is really powerful. Let me give you one example. In South Australia now, actually at this time of the year, it's quite common that at points in the day, um, the South Australian grid is powered 100% by rooftop solar alone. I'm not talking about the big solar farms. I'm not talking about the big wind farms. I'm not talking about renewable energy, but rooftop solar alone, the penetration rate is so high. And at this time of the, of the year where, you know, people aren't using their heaters, they're not using their air conditions, it's beautiful weather outside, um, you know, and so the, the energy demand's really low, that production is really high. So you get this, this these opportunities. So combined, this asset that collectively all of us have built as a community can be harnessed in much smarter ways. And so that's really our message to governments and to industries. Let's use the intelligence that we already have distributed and make sure that all new systems going in give us the ability to be, to orchestrate, to actually um, provide a response, to support the grid when it needs support, to actually pull back when it needs to be pulled back so that the outcome of that, James, is that we as an individual get a benefit from making an investment into these products and, 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 and um, you know, assets. But the community also wins. They also get a benefit because we have to invest less in the grid infrastructure, in the control systems at, at the grid level. And so this is kind of the win-win. This is the smart energy that we're talking about. So you know, your, your solar power, driving your home, being responsive, you know, um, running appliances when it makes sense, powering your electric vehicle, your two electric vehicles, or, or using your electric vehicles to actually be recharged at work during the daytime, bring that energy home, plug it into your home and use your vehicle as a battery on wheels, as a virtual battery to power your house for between 6 and 6 p.m. and 8 p.m. when you're doing a lot of energy intensive things. That's a fantastic win. It's a win for the grid. It's a win for the employer. It's a win for the employer. Employee, and that's what smart energy is all about. Yeah, it sounds like businesses will be will be uh, operating differently in the future. They're going to see their energy systems as part of their efficient operation, much more so than now. I actually think it's it's an employee retention thing. Right. If you can offer a solar car park in the daytime where you're actually, because the solar is so cheap, right, you, it's, you can almost give it away. So you're actually powering up your employees' vehicles during the daytime. They can drive that home and essentially power their home at nighttime. What, what a great incentive, right? Where would you prefer to work? You know, so, so just being a bit smart about how we do it, the, the answers are there. For sure. It's interesting what you say about infrastructure uh, because this might be an opportunity for Australian businesses as well. In the States, which is kind of a weird place in the United States, uh, they're saying they need to build a lot more infrastructure, including power lines, because their renewable energy sources are not near where, where their people are. Uh, but I yeah. gather what you're saying is that must, we've already done that with, with the old electricity grid. We've, we've, we've worked out how to get electricity to homes from power sources. That's right. Australia wins the gold medal when it comes to rooftop solar. So I'm not talking just about houses, but about businesses as well. Um, so, so you know, we, we, we've done it from both ends. We've done it from the bottom up, kind of the democratisation of energy piece and from the planned big systems down. Most places in the world have only done the big planned systems downwards. And we're even seeing here in Australia that there are some roadblocks emerging with those big projects to get environmental approvals, to get, um, you know, augmentation so extra capacity on the grid to get these projects you know um, you know linked up to make sure that local communities are brought along on the journey that there's there's benefit sharing for everybody involved um, you know that 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 is you know that you know, it's it's not easy to bring all those things together if you turn on the incentives and you drive across you know or you fly across our, our major cities the amount of industrial and commercial rooftop that's actually free and available for solar is massive. If you turn on the incentives today, and one of the things that we're calling on the federal government to do is to raise the threshold for the rebate scheme for, um, for rooftop solar. At the moment, you'll get a cash back, so a point of sale discount for systems up to 100 kilowatts. 
So your house, you might put an eight kilowatt or nine kilowatt system on your house. So your business, it goes up to 100 kilowatts. Now, we see a lot of businesses gaming the system where they'll put multiple 99 kilowatt systems on to get the, the cash back up front, right? If they were, if the government to raise, were to raise that to one megawatt or five megawatts, it would open up massive new opportunities. We'd actually see solar pouring onto the grid um, using our existing infrastructure without the need to build these, these big systems. So um, that, that's something that you know we, we're, we're keen to advocate for. It'd be an easy thing for the federal government to, to do using the existing scheme, uh, and we could unleash so much more um, uh, solar for business and commercial use. So are you saying that electricity, the, the cost of electricity itself has dropped dramatically, the cost of energy has dropped dramatically, plus there are rebates to help you get into that kind of renewable energy, and uh, global production is increasing, so the cost of installing it may come down. Is that the, the picture you're painting? Well, that's right. I mean, the cost of energy is rising, right? So, so we're seeing 24% on average electricity price increases across the nation this year, but the cost of solar energy is absolutely falling. Yes, it's clear. Yes. Yeah, and so, and so, and so, yes, that that delta between those two things is just getting bigger and bigger. And as the pressures increase, we see that you know, one of the problems with energy prices is that we are part of the global energy supply chain. So we're bound by global energy price changes. And what happened after Putin invaded Ukraine was that particularly gas prices went absolutely through the roof. Coal prices rose as well. And so energy actually became more expensive in Australia, just as it became more expensive all around the world. So whereas, you know, if you put a solar, a solar system up or you put a wind price program in, Vladimir Putin can't turn off the sun in Australia, mate. Right, so so we're not subject to those same. This would be a, a domestic capacity using our own resources, our you know, and so we're not subject to the to the global risk factors that other energy sources are. Yeah, I've got an idea, John, for you. An idea, just I'll just run it. Why, why don't we go to some sort of disputed country in the middle of nowhere, such as you know Africa, dig wood deep and and take some oil out, ship it to the nearest port, then ship it all the way to Singapore and then ship it down to Australia, refine it, ship it out to to refueling stations, then I'll put it into my car and I'll burn it once and we'll do the whole process over and over and over again. Good system. What do you think? James, it's genius, mate. Like, that is genius. And even better, like, we'll design the car so you turn up to the petrol station and you unplug it and you push this this highly flammable, nox, noxious sort of liquid into your car. You almost pass out every time you fill up your car with with this fuel. It's the icing on the car, on the cake. Yeah, but, I, I, I know. But this is the point, isn't it? Because, you know, we there is pushback on, oh, our current system works well. And I, I said on our other podcast a while ago that there was reports from the World Monetary Fund that uh, there was uh, just over $1 trillion spent on the uh, transition last year globally, but $1.7 trillion was spent on supporting the current uh, oil energy system. In other words, by the time we got the oil to Australia, it was too expensive, so the government just subsidised it. Or the Ukraine price no crisis caused the world to subsidise it. We're subsidising this inefficient system already. And yet right in front of us, the supply chain people, there is a better option. Electric cars are better and more efficient. Electric businesses. Are we going fully electric? Is that, is that the story? That's what we hear, is we're going to have an electrif electrified economy. Yeah, that's right. It, it's really, it's about electrify everything that you can. So that includes fuel switching. So, so some processes you currently use gas for, if there's a viable electric alternative, definitely move to the electric alternative. So that's step one. And then step two is um, power that electricity with renewable energy. It's going to be way cheaper. And of course, it doesn't have the environmental impact. So, um, you know, we, we work with a group called Rewiring Australia. You might have heard of Saul Griffiths and uh, and his work on, on sort of electrify everything. Um, they're doing work in local communities to take local communities and elect, help them electrify um, homes and small businesses in local communities. They're doing a, 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 a community in Wollongong at present. Very small. It's just a single postcode, 2515, a postcode in Wollongong. Um, but but the, the modelling that they've done on that is that they're going to actually re-inject something like $30 million into the local economy every year just from the fact that people aren't going to be buying petrol with that money being sent 
offshore, but instead they're going to be employing tradies to put on solar panels and other things and actually power their their vehicles with free Australian sunshine practically, right? So, so the benefit for local communities is huge. Now, if that's one little tiny community, replicate that all around the country where people have more money in their pocket, they're going to be spending and buying locally, uh, and we're not sending that to some petro dictatorship in the Middle East, but it actually stays in, in local communities. That's why people are so attracted to this idea and why I think it's going to be um, you know, a, ca- a case of catching fire, right, where you're actually going to get lots of people who'll see this working, who want to replicate it in their own community, and then away it goes. This is a great conversation. Let's take a break. Before we do, whenever I try to catch up with you, you're somewhere in the world, you're bouncing all over. Who's leading the race in, in doing this? Who's, who's the exemplar? Well, I think I think I really have to have to point to what China has done. I've been amazed. I've been in China every year since sort of 2007, some years up to three times a year, obviously not during COVID. You know, the number of companies that I met when they were startup companies that I went back a few years later and they're listing on the, the, the New York Stock Exchange or they're listing on the Shanghai Stock Exchange and they've got valuations of in excess of $50 billion. If, if I've seen that story once, I've seen it. 50 times, like I've, I've, I've actually had a front row seat to how that plays out. And it's all come down to one thing, policy, leadership and intent. So if you get the policies right, then the rest follows. And the great news is that if we, if we, the federal government and the states work together, particularly working with industry, listening to industry, right? The work that AI Group does fantastic in terms of providing that advice to government, right? If they listen to industry and they structure it properly, then we are off to the races. So, so the, 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 the example is China, but we need to take the lessons of that and apply it to Australia to get benefit for us and for our economy. Let's pick that up after the break. We'll be back in a moment. If you have supply chain or business improvement challenges, contact AI Group's Business Improvement and Growth Hub. The Big Hub is a library of practical and relevant resources designed to assist member businesses to grow and improve. The Big Hub also includes an extensive network of experienced, pre-qualified business improvement consultants. For more details, contact big at aigroup.com.au. That's big at aigroup.com.au. John Grimes, it's a good chat. Before the break, you're talking about uh, China and, and and how they're possibly the exemplar in electrifying their, their their economy. What does the Australian business uh, governments? What do Australian governments have to do to, you know, get us up to the right pace or what the right place that we should be at? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, uh, China this year will install uh, is installing about twelve gigawatts of solar per month. Now, to put that in perspective, that means they'll probably be at about 140 gigawatts of solar installed this year. Australia will install about five gigawatts of solar this year. So China will install in 10 days what Australia will install in the entire year. Now, they're a much bigger economy than ours, right? They're many times bigger than us, right? But nevertheless, proportionally, they're really um, streaming ahead. So the first thing is, um, I I think those targets are really important. I think one of the most um, successful policy measures of the last decade has been the renewable energy target. Now, this was something that was actually instituted by the Howard government initially, and it was about driving Australia to get to 20% renewables by 2020. We actually got to 20% renewables before 2020. And the good news is we've absolutely powered ahead since then. So we're actually sitting at over 30% renewables sitting here today in 2023. But having that framework of, of policy incentives and having a whole of government approach is really important. Now, the, the federal Labor government have instituted a new target for 2030. Their target is 82% renewables by 2030. That's a good start. The problem is that the policy mechanism that got us all the way to where we are today, the renewable energy target, um, um, has stopped. So it it no longer provides a framework for building large-scale renewables. And for, for households, it will only provide support through until 2030. So we need to get something in place to solve that. Now, what the policy the federal government's put 
put forward is something called the Capacity Investment Scheme. And this is going to be a series of, of policy um, incentives for large-scale renewable projects. Um, the problem is it's taking a while to work through the detail, James. And so we, you know, we're kind of in this hiatus period where the old program has stopped working. The new program has not fully been implemented yet. And so we're seeing a massive slowdown in the build. So the lesson that we've learned is frameworks, targets, leadership, consistency is critical in this, in this space. The transition won't happen by itself, and it's imperative that governments build capacity ahead of coal-fired retirements. You can't expect you're going to turn off an old coal-fired generator, and if you haven't built in advance of that, that everything's going to be sweet. It's not, right? It's going to be disruptive. And so that's why you have to invest in new renewable resources before you switch off the old the old coal-fired power stations. And and so that is a coordinated and planned transition. Otherwise, you have a disruptive and very expensive transition. The problem is that if you leave that to the free market and you say, just go ahead and build all of this excess capacity that we don't need today, well, people aren't going to make that investment decision because it doesn't stack up, right? So you've got to have a, a short-term framework that incentivizes that build. You then withdraw the, 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 the old generation and the lights stay on, and it's secure, and it's cheap, and it's clean, right? And then you do the next piece. And so um, policy, uh, the framework, working with industry, that's how you get this right, and that's what needs to be done. So what do businesses need to do? If, you know, we're heading towards the, a new year soon, it's hard to believe, but uh, there's only a couple of months to go. Uh, as we head into one year closer to our, our hard targets, our hard uh, and the net zero targets, what do I as a business person need to do, need to be thinking about? What do I need to be learning? What do I need to be aware of? Look, I think that the great news is that from a business perspective, you can be driven by the numbers. That That is really going to be the primary driver. So if you can, you can absolutely slash your input costs for energy. So you can slash your electricity bill, you can slash your gas bill, and you can slash your power, your petrol and diesel bill by electrifying, right? So going with renewable and making that, and that, that stacks up today. Now for electric vehicles, a new range of electric vehicles, commercial, industrial are coming online. So there's companies that are about to come into the Australian market that do, for example, um, you know, last mile delivery vehicles, um, local, you know, in city deliveries. So, you know, think, you know, the local dropping off of your your, your Woolworths shopping or whatever it might be, or, or Australia Post, but also long, long haul um, uh, trucks and buses. And they have swappable battery systems. So that, so that you, you, you pull We're in. We're going to talk about uh, EVs in the next episode to the EV uh, industry. It's fantastic. It's very exciting. What, yeah. what about in terms of where I put my investments? You think it's sort of look at solar? Uh, are we, do I need to have microgrids set up outside in my where I used to have big fuel tanks? Are there now you know microgrids? What, what, what's happening? Potentially, each 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 company is going to be a little bit different, and you can get experts to help you with this. For some companies, actually doing a power purchase agreement, so which is like a it's like buying virtual solar and wind, right? So what you do is you contract with somebody who has already built a big solar farm, a big wind farm, or has some you know big battery, for example. You can actually do a power purchase agreement with them and offset directly your energy use through that arrangement. So this is what the big companies like Woolworths and Coles and others do is, is they might not have the space on the facility to offset all of their energy use with solar. That, by the way, is actually the cheapest and best thing to do because you're not going to pay any transmission charges for that energy. It's, it's on your roof, right? But if you can't do that, the next best thing to do is to do these power purchase agreements. So you, you might find that at the moment, you know, with, with, your, with your power provider, you're at 35 cents. You might find that you can actually strike a power purchase agreement with a large solar and wind farm through a retailer. The retailer can, can, can do this for you and pay an effective rate at 12 cents per kilowatt hour, for example. So even if you don't have the space on your facility, you can still access the benefits of, of renewable energy. And once you're driven by that economic thing, right, you've got a great sell to your customers 
to your employees, to your investors, because you are taking meaningful action when it comes to climate. And we're seeing that that customers in particular have a choice and customers are preferencing those companies who are who are genuine and really taking meaningful steps to, to smash their emissions. The other cohort is young people. Young people do not want to come and work for an employer that is making the problem worse. And so that, as we're in a constrained a labour market, and the, and there's a real competition for talent. If you're going to actually attract and retain young people, you need to have the economic credentials to back that in, because they care about this stuff. Because James, you, you and I, it's been an inconvenience for us. This whole climate change thing, it's going to ruin their lives if we don't if we don't address it. This is a, an immediate thing for them, um, and so uh, it's another good reason to act. Yeah, this is not a um, this is not a debate for the the, the young folk, the, two, the kids at school. This is not a debate to, for them. This is settled. Uh, we, we need to do something, and they're going to start flexing their muscles. Um, the impact the twenties twenty year olds probably have, and they'll be in positions of power in a few years' uh, time. We need to be aware of this. A couple of quick, just a couple of quick ones before we finish. It's been a great conversation. Um, is nuclear smart energy? Um, you know, it's a debate yeah. that's been around for a long, all of my life. Nuclear's been around all of my life. Yet it's never yeah. really had great traction um, here. Is it smart energy? So, so, so nuclear is really elegant engineering. That is unbelievable. The way that humans have been able to harness that energy source is unbelievable. And it is carbon-free, emission-free energy, right? So that is that they are big ticks. The, the difficulty with nuclear is that, well, there are really three. The first is, um, I was talking about economics. Now, renewables is the cheapest energy source, right? Um, so you've got renewables, then you've got, a, you've got daylight, and then you've got things like coal and gas, and then you've got daylight and you've got nuclear. So let me, let me talk about megawatt hours now. So this is the cost of, from large scale projects. Uh, a solar farm will, will give you energy at about $45 per megawatt hour. Uh, a coal-fired power station will give you energy at about $90 per megawatt hour. A nuclear power plant, one of these modular nuclear power plants reactors they're talking about, will give you power at $150 per megawatt hour. So $150 from nuclear plays $45 from solar or wind, right? So that's point number one. <laughs> point number two is nuclear reactors are uninsurable. Right. You can't get insurance because if something goes wrong, you lose 40 square kilometres of your country that you'll never be able to use again. Right? Mm, yep. And the, tax, the taxpayer is on the hook if something goes wrong. Now, who, low risk, right? You can manage the risk, but look at Fukushima, right? Who foresaw that? Who could foresee an aeroplane crashing into a nuclear reactor, right? So these things can and do happen even in, in advanced economies. The third, the third, problem with nuclear is timeliness. So the first nuclear reactors, these new generation reactors are, are, are starting to, to be built in, in Canada and the United States. By the time that the technology is ready for the Australian market, you're probably looking at the late 2030s, 2040 as a realistic time frame. Now, the problem if you focus so much on nuclear is, well, what do we do in the meantime? If your argument is, let's wait for nuclear, well, we're bugger jacks, mm, right? Mm, it's all over. Mm. And so it's actually a recipe for delay. And so I'm, I'm actually open to the idea of nuclear being part of the mix, right? But you can build a solar farm with a post hole digger and an Allen key, right? I can go out there. <laughs> the, industry, the industry can just build this like everywhere all at once immediately, right? Uh, and so let's do as much of that as possible at the cheapest energy possible. If at the end we've still got a delta that we've got to do nuclear for and the technology has come down in price and it's available, well, let's think about it then. But let's not say it's an either-or choice today. It isn't. The choice is build renewables like crazy, and if the other comes online, well, that's great. My friend uh, Bruce, today Bruce, uh, has been working in the solar industry installation area for for decades. Uh, and he tells me it's hard to get A, it's hard to get panels, uh, and B, it's hard to get workers. Is this, uh, is this, did it come across your desk? Because what you're saying is this is the obvious answer, it'll, it'll, it'll solve a lot of problems, but you can't get EVs and you can't get solar panels and you can't get workers. Yeah. 
I think, I think Bruce is right when it comes to workers. There is a massive um, shortage of workers, um, and this is only going to get worse. One of the big problems is that in, in the as as qualified electricians, only two percent of qualified electricians are female. Right? We've done a really bad job of gender equity in this industry, wow. and it's unsustainable. We have to encourage and recruit young women into this industry. We're going to grow them in the industry. That's going to be a big part of, of how we address this. But labour skills, big problem. We've got to get more electricians, more tradespeople. There's going to be a whole army of people doing this electrification work across the, the country. Skills is a big problem in our industry and, and in many others, but it, it's a particular problem for us. In terms of access to solar panels, actually the good news news is right now there is an abundance of solar panels. What happened is that Europe actually um, ordered up big because they thought they were going to put in lots of solar panels for the Ukraine war. They've put in some, but they haven't put in nearly as, as much as they think. So at the moment, actually, there's price downward. Probably going probably to get workers, John. Yeah, well, you know, and so and so the good news is that, that, that those solar panels are absolutely available. They're getting cheaper all the time. Just another interesting uh, note, James, you, your listeners might be interested in. I was talking to a, to a battery specialist analyst out of China, and they said that at the moment they've built so much battery factory capacity that most factories are only running at about 50% capacity. So there's a lot more there's a lot more ability to produce batteries than there is a market for the batteries at the moment, and that is going to actually uh, cause downward pressure on prices for batteries as well. So I think those things, um, so, so it's less about in this case, uh, it's less about the components, it's more about the skills right at the moment. Yeah, right. Maybe that, uh, that delay in buying batteries is because everyone's hoping that there's new technology or expecting new technology to, to come through quickly. That might be something worth investigating in a future podcast. Really, really interesting. Just give me give you a tidbit. In a couple of weeks, we're taking a delegation up to China. We're visiting CATL, the world's largest lithium-ion battery manufacturer. That They provide batteries to Tesla, to Volkswagen, to BMW. And they've just announced this new technology that will allow you to, to get a 400-kilometer range charged in 10 minutes. So, so there is lots of technology leaps in batteries that will mm. flow through. And, uh, and, and definitely, it's an exciting space. I saw you've got a delegation in China soon, so I was going to ask you about that. That's, that sounds fascinating. You've also got an installer's roadshow coming up, according to your website. What's that? Yeah, that, that's right. We we we, uh, we do technical development training for solar designers, solar and battery designers and installers, uh, and we and we provide um, you know technical support for them. So that's a, an exciting program in November, held in the major capitals around the country, also in Hobart. But the other one, James, is our annual conference and exhibition uh, on on the sixth and seventh of March, happening mm-hmm. at the International Convention Centre at Darling Harbour in Sydney. Now the great news is this is entirely free of charge. Come along. It's a two-day event. We've got three concurrent streams. We've got 130 expert speakers, everyone from the Prime Minister down, um, talking about all of these issues and how businesses can save money and what what does the technology look like, what does the economics look like, what are some case studies, uh, and really encourage people to come along to that. It's a it's a great forum. There's a really bad pun there about um, come and find out how to be fully charged at no charge or something or other. So. <laughs> Love it. Uh, you, yeah. you can have that for nothing. It's been a great chat, John. Thank you so much. I, uh, you're back to China, and then we'll have to get you back on and tell us about batteries because that sounds very, very good. But in the meantime, thank you so much for for your time today. Good and James, really, really appreciate it. Thanks for the chat, and uh, I look forward to staying in touch. Yeah, let's keep chatting. Well, that's it for another episode of Supply Circles. Thanks again to everyone for listening, and thanks for your constant feedback. It's always appreciated. If you have any feedback on today's interview with John Grimes, with John Grimes or ideas for the show, or just want to give me some feedback, hit me up at uh, james.scotland at aigroup.com.au or head over to my LinkedIn page. I'd love to hear from you. And we'll be back in a fortnight with more insights into the keys to building sustainable supply chains. Thank you for joining me. This is Supply Circles. I'm James Scotland. Bye for now. <laughs>